One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. You've just downloaded the podcast for BBC News Hour Extra, one topic for one hour every week. And this week, a very contentious topic, Guantanamo. It's a good time to do it. It's coming to the end of the Obama presidency. He said he'd have it closed down in a year. He hasn't. And now there is uh, the possibility of it not only remaining open, but actually taking more prisoners. So Elizabeth Davis just seems like a, a pretty obvious topic. I mean, cause, because, in a way, Obama started out with this. It was his first executive order. Yeah. And, you know, I think people will remember back when Obama first came into the White House in January 2009 that... That was the big thing he was going to do. That was going to be his big first achievement. And in fact, as we'll hear on this programme, you know, his very second day in office, he signed an executive order saying he was going to close it within a year. You know, we are coming to the end, the final weeks of his presidency, you know, eight years later, basically, and it's still open. I mean, admittedly, there are a lot fewer people there, um, but it's still open. And we've also come from this situation where in 2008... Uh, when President Obama was was running for the presidency, you know, John McCain was a Republican candidate, and both of them were campaigning, saying they would close Guantanamo. You know, even uh, President Bush before that said he wanted to close Guantanamo. And actually, this time around, everyone who ran for the Republican presidential nomination uh, was talking about keeping it open. So attitudes, you know, have really changed. Yeah. So there are sort of three topics we're dealing with. Why has it not been closed despite that executive order? And then the question of, you know who's there and why. And we've got uh, Kate Clark, who did some very interesting research into some Afghan cases, which is it's quite revealing, I think, of, mm. of what's gone on. And then the question of, of, of Donald Trump and what he's going to do. Yeah. And, and what will happen to Guantanamo? Because that is certainly very undecided. You know, the White House at the moment wants to do one thing. Congress wants to do another. And we'll hear from a US senator who has a very personal interest in preventing uh, the Guantanamo detainees being brought to facilities in the United States, uh, which is a big sticking point between Congress and the White House. And, yeah, I mean, the, the it's been determined uh, by the Pentagon that there are certain people in Guantanamo who can't have trials, nor can they be transferred or released. So, um, you know... What yeah, do you do with them? <laughs> they're the so-called forever prisoners. Well, well, we'll, we'll talk it all through. It is, it is, it's a very contentious topic, as you'll hear. But <laughs> here is uh, this week's News Hour Extra. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with News Hour Extra. Let me take you back to the 22nd of January 2008. It was President Obama's second day in office and he ordered, in very clear terms, that Guantanamo was to be closed down. This first executive order that we are signing uh, by the authority vested in me as president by the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America in order to affect the appropriate disposition of individuals currently detained by the Department of Defense at Guantanamo and promptly to close the detention facility at Guantanamo consistent with the national security and foreign policy interests of the United States and the interests of justice, I hereby order. And we then provide... Uh, the process whereby Guantanamo will be closed uh, no later than one year from now. There we go. One year from now, he said, and it still hasn't happened. And we'll discuss why not and what the future holds for those detainees still left at Guantanamo. And to discuss these issues, I have, first of all, Carol Rosenberg. Now, back in 2001, uh, she's a reporter on the Miami Herald, still is, and she was then told by her editor to cover the arrival of the first prisoners at Guantanamo and to report the story from start to finish. And 15 years later, she's still on it. And she has spent a remarkable uh, 1,000 nights plus at the Guantanamo base. That's more than any other reporter and has obviously followed every twist and turn of the story. Uh, we've got David Rivkin, who's a former associate White House counsel in the Bush Senior Administration and now a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defence of Democracies, and he's defended the practice of holding enemy combatants as a normal part of war. We have Major General Mike Leonard, now retired, who was the first commanding officer at the Guantanamo Military Prison. Uh, he led the Joint Task Force to build the facility. And we have Moaz Mbeg, a British citizen who was held at Guantanamo between 2003 and 2005 on the grounds that he was a member of al-Qaeda, who'd been at al-Qaeda training camps in Afghanistan 
He's been investigated by the Americans and the British over many, many years, but never convicted in a court of law. He now lives in the UK. So let me just ask you, first of all, all of you, and Carol, can you start us off with this you know, basic question? Obama said it'll be closed in a year, and you know, still it isn't. Why not? I think when President Obama first ordered the closure of Guantanamo, he had envisioned either trial or release, that they would charge the detainees who could be accused of crimes, and they would release those for whom there were no charges. But in the year that it took to study the files, he realized that there was a third category. Prisoners he wanted that under the laws of war he wanted to keep without charge indefinitely, what we call the forever prisoners. So closing Guantanamo became moving Guantanamo, taking the prisoners who would not be tried to a site in the United States and building what we call Guantanamo North. And Congress thwarted that effort. They said, you cannot move these prisoners out of Guantanamo to the United States. You cannot transfer them. You cannot build on U.S. soil. And they cannot be in any way taken to the United States to include trial in federal courts or medical care. So what started off as trial or release became trial in some instances, move some to the United States, and release others. Now, in brief, he's succeeded to downsize the detention center by three-fourths. He started with about 240 detainees there. As of today, there are 60. And just to sort of clarify what you're saying a bit, because critics of his say he went wrong the moment he said, I'll do detention without trial in the US rather than in Cuba. And from that point on, it was never going to close. Well, I think that he, he genuinely believed as a former constitutional law professor that you do not hold people indefinitely without charge. But as they dug through the files and took a look at these detainees, he came to realize that there was a kind of war prisoner they wanted to hold, someone who maybe did not conduct criminal activity or could not be convicted of criminal activity, but who, in the evolving view of the Obama administration, became similar to the Bush administration, that there could be war prisoners in this war called the War on Terror. David Rifkin, uh, you're in Washington, D.C. What's your analysis of the same question? I agree with Carol. I would just add one thing. There is nothing aberrant about the notion that if you engaged in uh, an armed conflict, and not sort of in a metaphysical sense, like war and poverty or a war on terrorism, but against specific enemy combatant organizations, al-Qaeda, these days certainly other entities, that the individuals you capture that belong to those organizations, the members of those organizations, are enemy combatants. And every war you've held, people you captured as enemy combatants. And if they were lawful enemy combatants, would be prisoners of war. There is an age-old concept of unlawful enemy combatants. There's absolutely nothing unusual about it. And the fact that it took Obama administration a little while to figure it out, well, I'll just say slow learning curve, but that's good. But I wanted to emphasize one point, that the whole debate to me about Guantanamo has always been misplaced. The people who are talking about Guantanamo as a place are missing the broader picture. To the extent you're going to hold captured enemy combatants, the ones we've captured, and maybe future ones, and I'll address it on the second, why would we hold them in, uh, in a supermax facility uh, or in the naval brig in uh, Charleston or in Guantanamo? There's a matter of locations. I'm sure Carol would agree the Guantanamo, as far as the facilities are concerned, is, is perfectly run. There's no prisoner and prisoner violence. There are no abuses by the guards. The medical care is excellent. The food is excellent. I mean, I'm not saying it's a pleasant place to be in, but if you're going to be detained, Guantanamo is, is probably better than any, any facility in the United States. The real issue is, do we need the application, the utilization of, our, of our laws of war uh, architecture that enables us to hold uh, individuals who capture enemy combatants. If we do not use this architecture, we are not going to be able to prosecute this war properly because um, <laughs> applying the criminal law paradigm here would not work. Precisely yeah. for the reason that Carol mentioned, there are a bunch of people who clearly are going to go back to the battlefield. Okay, we'll talk, we'll talk, we'll talk yeah. through all these issues, but that gives you uh, your, your, your sort of opening position, as it were, and we will have uh, plenty of chance to talk through what exactly those points you're raising. Uh, General Leonard, you, when you started it, did you have a sort of view of how long it would be there for? 
I felt that it would be there much longer than uh, the administration did. In fact, I had that conversation with several uh, high-ranking administration officials that uh, we'd better prepare, be prepared for the long haul. And I based that on the fact that I'd also commanded uh, the Cuban migrant camps uh, during the uh, Cuban exodus from Cuba and then their subsequent pickup uh, on the high seas. I think, though, that it's important that we understand why Guantanamo was selected. Places do matter, and Guantanamo was selected because it has been used by administrations on both sides of the aisle as essentially an extra-legal area. I am not a lawyer. I acknowledge that. Uh, But it uh, was uh, selected, and in the words of Donald Rumsfeld, it was selected because it was the least worst place. Right. And there was a sort of legal importance, which, again, we can discuss uh, in it being in Cuba, not on uh, the American mainland, as it were. And Mozambique, you were there from 2003 to 2005. What sense did you have of how long you would be there? I was born and raised in the UK. I've always understood the rights of habeas corpus, and I know that these have been exported to the United States of America, that it's within its constitution, that a person is either charged with a crime or that they are uh, released. I didn't understand this category that there would be enemy combatants or un- un- enemy aliens, as we were first described, where we wouldn't be given access to any legal representation. We wouldn't know the charges against us because there weren't any charges against us. Interestingly, when we were first taken into custody, we were all given in Kandahar enemy prisoner of war cards, EPW cards, uh, which extended to us those, those rights of, as prisoners under the Geneva Conventions. When they recognised that would ex- afford us rights that we, we didn't have, uh, they quickly removed those cards from us and then gave us our cards, our numbers on blank cards. So this suggested for me that this is going to be a place that is outside the law, that everything that I've known about the law up until now I can forget when I saw that the FBI, the CIA, military intelligence and beyond had, were all involved, in, including including my own government, including the British, I recognised that this would be something indefinite. Now, when I was sent to Guantanamo, I was told that this will be the beginning of the end of the process for me, but it was the beginning of a very long end. And, of course, 14 years on, it's still open. Of course, the condition of being a prisoner in Guantanamo, you have to be a Muslim, you have to be a terrorism suspect and you can't be a United States citizen. All of those three things are key factors into what brought people into Guantanamo and has uh, allowed them to remain there. So rights and everything that we understood before, the presumption of innocence was all gone because now, because in the name of this new war, it was no holds barred. Let's get back to the issue of uh, why it is still open. And to help us with that, we've been speaking with Ambassador Lee Woloski, who is the US State Department Special Envoy for the Guantanamo Closure. And I asked him why President Obama had failed to keep his promise. Well, as you know, we've made substantial progress toward the goal of closing Guantanamo. When the president took office, there were 242 detainees located there. There are now 60. We expect to further reduce that number in the coming weeks. Unfortunately, though, the Congress decided to act during the president's first term to put in place a number of restrictions that made it more difficult for the administration both to transfer detainees from Guantanamo, who we had concluded could be safely and responsibly transferred, and also to close the facility. Right. So you're putting it all on Congress. But what would you say to the argument that President Obama lost this argument right at the start when he basically said, we will detain people without trials in the United States rather than in Cuba, and that he lost it then? Well, uh, we do have legal authority, as you know, both under U.S. and international law to detain enemy combatants uh, during periods of hostility. And where the U.S. government uh, has concluded, and this is six agencies and departments unanimously concluding that uh, individuals no longer need to be detained, that we act to promptly transfer them to locations where appropriate security assurances can be put in place. Yeah, but there are so many sort of holes in that, aren't there? You know, you sort of say they've all been cleared as non-threatening and yet they still need to be held in security arrangements. And it, and it does raise the question, I mean, do you reckon, looking back on it, that any people were put in Guantanamo who just shouldn't have been there? Well, we have concluded that there have been cases of mistaken identity uh, or cases where an initial thought about who someone was and what they did just didn't prove to be accurate. And that's 
really the reason for continued review. But so, so can, can you then tell us about this number that the Defence Department put out saying 5.6 of those transferred out had uh, re-engaged in um, violent jihadism or terrorism. Is that the correct number? I believe the number, the percentage is just under 5% in this administration uh, who are confirmed to have re-engaged in some manner. And it is not a standard that is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And it doesn't mean necessarily that they have taken up arms. Uh, It just means that they are out doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And that is too high of a number, uh, frankly. And we constantly work to reduce that number. But the risks of releasing detainees have to be measured against the risks of continuing to detain people who no longer should be detained. And in fact, another statistic that is worthwhile to remember is that the reengagement rate was much higher uh, during the previous administration. It was close to 20 percent. And of those individuals who reengaged in the previous administration, almost half of them are dead or are in custody. So you know, we, we try to, to be careful about how we proceed, but there are risks on both sides. What do you think? Will it be there in eight years? No, it won't be. That was Ambassador Lee Woloski. And I want to just go straight to you, General Leonard, and get your response on this question of people going back to the battlefield, because it is at the heart, really, of this issue of, of why people are still being held. And when you hear those figures of the numbers who are going back to the battlefield to do something, and he's saying not very much in many cases, but to do something against the United States... What does that lead you to conclude about the rights and wrongs of release? First off, you know, we've had 780 detainees incarcerated at Guantanamo. Of those, 678 were released. Some of those did go back to the battlefield. But many of those should never have been sent to Guantanamo in the first place. During the initial period of the war in Afghanistan, we were paying bounties for the pickup of potential suspects, uh, 3000 to $25,000. Well, in Afghanistan, $25,000, even $3,000, is a remarkable sum of, uh, sum of money. And many of the people that were sent to Guantanamo were sent there simply because they had made enemies or were in the wrong place at the wrong time. That is a pretty low standard for locking someone up. Whether you apply the protections under the Constitution or those under the Geneva Conventions or those discussed elsewhere, it's just too low a standard. Would I demand a uh, uh, 100% certainty that an individual would not return to the battlefield? Absolutely not. Uh, You know, American foreign policy is never at its best when it's made in an atmosphere of fear. I just think that we need to... uh, uh, elevate this discussion and ask, what is America? What is it to us? What is it to the the rest of uh, the world? And how should we comport ourselves? Okay, David Rivkin, I want to bring you in here, then we'll go to the others. But what what do you make of what the the general has just argued there that, you know, you'll never get 100% uh, guarantee. So so you just got to go ahead. The factual assessment of this process is exactly right. We're not going to ever get 100% assessment of whether an individual would go back to Belfort. Because let me clarify, I have no doubt that there are some people in Guantanamo wrongly picked up. And, and frankly, all those individuals, I believe, have been released. Regrettable, but war is a messy business. But the vast majority of individuals who have been released have not been released for that reason. It's not that they were wrongly classified as enemy combatants. It's that the conclusion was made that they somehow reformed themselves and would not go back to the battlefield, would not engage in terrorism. Those assessments are inherently unreliable. So I agree with that. Now, which way does it cut? No power in history, no democracy in history that's waged war has ever engaged in this business of releasing individuals they believe to be correctly classifiable as enemy combatants, lawful or unlawful, before the termination of hostilities and running the risk that they'll go back to the battlefield, even in some of them. So that is unbelievably generous gesture on our part, for which I think we don't get any credit. But the second point is I don't understand this notion that we should somehow be even more generous. What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed not to take individuals into custody when they're waging war against us? Are we supposed only to sort of kill them using drones? Or if we happen to capture them, we should turn around and and, and apologize? I mean, that is absolutely a wrong policy. So to me, capturing enemy combatants, holding them for some for a very long period of time, others for less so, 
reviewing them, concluding on the basis of you know six agency deliberations or whatever, that they don't pose that high of a risk and sending them back out, however, incurring the risk that they will go back to the battlefield, is about as generous as a democracy can be if it is serious about waging warfare. Carol Rosenberg with the Miami Herald here. I think that Mr. Rivkin fundamentally misunderstands what's going on with this assessment process. The assessment process is a evaluation of whether this particular prisoner, detainee as he's called, should be released to circumstances that can mitigate the threat, meaning whether he was correctly profiled as al-Qaeda or incorrectly. So there's a recognition that when he leaves, he's not going to be necessarily disinclined to be angry at us. So the circumstances of transfer are to try to find a way for that man to get on with his life. The goal of these transfers to resettlement and repatriation is for the detainee to want to look forward, not backward. They're not saying that they are no threat whatsoever. They're not saying that the intelligence assessment found that they were absolutely should have been at Guantanamo or absolutely should not have been at Guantanamo. What the assessments are saying is it's time to move that person along. I think that there's a consensus both in parts of American society and certainly parts of the military that we do not want to hold people in perpetuity in this endless war on terror, as okay. we would call them as forever prisoners. Let me go to Mosenbeck and just put to you, we just heard all these arguments about release. Do you accept from your side that the United States does have a legitimate concern that people who are released, for whatever reason, whether you know whatever the source of their grievance is, may threaten the United States, and that puts U.S. politicians in an extremely difficult position. You know, I remember once I was held in Camp uh, Echo uh, Maximum Security Isolation Block, and I'd been there for two years, and one of the the soldiers who were guarding me said, Mozam, you know, I don't know how you do this. If I was you, if I wasn't a terrorist before I came to this place, I'd be a terrorist after I leave this place by what had been done to me. This part of the assessments they're making, the process, is that has this person become more, quote-unquote, negatively radicalised as a result of what's happened to them by the treatment? And even if Guantanamo's got better, um, you know, it's the old Malcolm X saying, you don't take a knife and put a man's back uh, nine inches deep, pull it back five inches and say, we've made progress. No, we, we've, we heard, we, we've heard we, that point. So do you accept, and, and you know, you're agreeing with that point, so do, do you accept that the United States does have a problem, that, that releasing these people can make the U.S. vulnerable? Well, what's, what's making the U.S. vulnerable right now is ISIS. And ISIS, you know, just take a look at what was done uh, with the dressing up of the hostages where we were brutally executed. ISIS is another thing. I mean, so They're dressed in orange suits. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. the point is that they're dressed in orange suits. Yeah. One of the killers was waterboarding um, some of the prisons that he was holding. And so this is part of the Guantanamoization of Iraq. Okay. If you remember... Uh, Mozambique, uh, I've put to you, I think it's a perfectly fair question. I'm asking yeah. you whether you think that people have been radicalised for whatever reason, whether it comes from Islamist sources or whether it comes from de- you know, detention in very, very bad circumstances, the people who have been thus radicalised and pose a threat to the US, that it, do, you, do, you, do you see that it's difficult for the US to release them, however unfair the situation well, I, I may be? I think if you, if you based upon the statistics uh, quoted by uh, previous speakers, and it says that 95% of them haven't, 95% of them have gone back to try to rebuild lives that have been broken by this process, then I think that's a fantastic um, result in terms of, of that. If 5% of people are recidivists, as, as the, the, the statement goes, people are going back to a country that is, for example, in Afghanistan, where there's a war going on, it's not surprising that it may be possible that they may take up arms. But, you know, we don't have a 95% return rate or a non-offending rate of, of ordinary prisoners in the United States of America, but that doesn't stop releases. OK, that's, that, that is an answer to the question. I think General Leonard probably would agree with that. So, David Rifkin, would you agree with that? Let me put it this way, and again, I want to be fair. Let's stipulate that there may have been some individuals in Guantanamo who were wrongly classified and got radicalized and embittered during their time there. But I I would very much like for my colleague Zumbeg to admit that there were a number of people in Guantanamo, including all the ones who were being held, the ones for whom release is not possible, where everybody absolutely 100% certainty agrees. But if you release them, they're going to go back to the battlefield because they are indeed irredeemable, unlawful enemy combatants. If you understand this proposition, the question becomes, what do you do with them? Do you just say, it's, it's okay, it's, it's, it's cricket, just release them? Or do you say you hold them? And 
again, we, we have to hold them. The reason, by the way, even this administration, who is very critical of Guantanamo, concluded could not release 50, 60, 70 of remaining detainees. It's because there's no doubt, there's no dispute what would happen. And you are okay. absolutely right. Releasing such individuals, Bowie, how is that humane? It's not only a danger to the United States. It's a danger to our allies. It's a danger to civilians. We're talking about people who kill civilians for sport. Okay, David how Rifkin, is that humane to release them? David Rifkin, the David, world? No, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. We've reached the first end of, at the end of the first half of the program. And David Rifkin, we, we will hear from Kate Clark, who actually does challenge some of what you're saying there. So we'll give you a chance to respond to what she says. But she does address precisely this question of the people who are left behind and why they were arrested in the first place or detained in the first place. You're listening to News Hour Extra from the BBC World Service with Owen Bennett-Jones. A reminder of our panel today, we've got Carol Rosenberg of the Miami Herald, David Rivkin, former Associate White House Counsel in the Bush Senior Administration, former Guantanamo Commander General Mike Leonard, and Mozenbeg, who was held at Guantanamo between 2003 and 2005. Now, there are 60 people left at Guantanamo, and 20 of them are cleared for transfer, meaning that the 40... Uh, who will be left behind, you would think of as pretty irredeemable, maybe, perhaps the likes of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, accused of being one of the key organisers of the 9-11 killings. But are all the 40 in that category? Uh, We can get some analysis of that now from Kate Clark. She is with the Afghanistan Analyst Network. She studied eight of them. I should say she's uh, been in Afghanistan since the Taliban days, on and off. Been there. She's very, very familiar with the country. And she's been through all the information Basically, some of it squeezed out of the US government by persistent journalists, some of it from tribunal transcripts, some of it from court cases, some of it from WikiLeaked documents. She's gone through the lot and looked at eight Afghans who were being held uh, basically a year ago. So what can she tell us about the current status of those eight Afghans? Three were released to the United Arab Emirates in August, and they're in some sort of detention still, a de-radicalisation programme. There are another three who have been cleared for release but have not yet left Guantanamo. The last two, there's a ruling that they should be indefinitely detained. And when you looked at the documentation, the various bits of information you put together, how many of the eight would you say there is evidence that they were involved in violent jihadism? Uh, For none of the eight, I would say. With two, there is evidence that they were possibly low-level... And those are two that have been cleared. The rest, there is no evidence that's been presented that is coherent. So, for example, you have unverified intelligence reports, and these are reports that usually within the um, American intelligence services, they come with a warning that they're not to be relied upon. You have testimony obtained under duress or torture that's used. And then there's a whole raft of actual mistakes, factual mistakes and misunderstandings. Often what people are accused of makes no sense and it would not stand in a court of law. Tell us about those mistakes and misunderstandings. What do you mean by that? Well, for example, one man was accused of being a a monarchist, of trying to bring the king back, of working with a group that had stopped fighting in 1992 called the Gucci Gorillas in the 1980s. And one, one of the things you read these files and you think, How on earth did anyone come up with this stuff? Five minutes on Google would have revealed that this accusation was nonsense. Right, so you're saying that the sort of groups he was associated with means that it would be extremely unlikely that he'd be involved in in the sort of thing the Americans are worried about. The accusation that's made against him, that he was plotting with these particular groups and these particular individuals, is impossible. I mean, this group is not fighting, has not fought since 1992... And the people he was accused of plotting with, I mean, they went on to be police chiefs and MPs and the Minister of Defence. They're at the heart of the Afghan government, the Afghan establishment, on the pro-American side. I don't think they actually checked to see what was the nature of the groups. That's what it looks like. We've got three people who part of the evidence against them was that they were... With them, uh, there's a missionary group called um, Jamati Tablir, which is it's got millions of members in South Asia. It believes now is the time for preaching. 
and making Muslims pray and fast and lead better lives rather than jihad. It gets into trouble with groups like the Taliban or the Pakistani Taliban. And again, American intelligence has assumed that it's front for al-Qaeda. So if you're going door to door, I mean, there's one guy who was selling plastic flowers. That was his job. And he, he went door to door trying to get Muslims to lead better lives. He's accused of being with al-Qaeda. So again, a, a basic misunderstanding of, of, of what this group was. I mean, I'm fine. I'm an Afghan expert. I look through these files and I can see immediately what the problems are. I can look at them and I can see likely who informed on someone, for example. If you don't have that background, these accusations that look like fantasy to me may well look pretty reasonable. You know, I don't know the basis of the intelligence for um, or, or the expertise on other countries, but certainly for Afghanistan, it's been sorely lacking. There we are. That was Kate Clark speaking from Kabul. She's with the Afghanistan Analyst Network. Carol Rosenberg, are you surprised by what she says there? Well, I think that part of what she says is true, that some of these assessments have concluded that people were mistakenly profiled. One of the things we've uncovered at the Miami Herald in examining some of the same documents she did is that there was a confusion in the early days by the American intelligence when they looked at these men's names and historical backgrounds in which their nicknames, their cunhas, were conflated with other people. There's an example of um Afghan who was cleared for release who was thought to be a high-level al-Qaeda associate and actually thought to be a chemical weapons maker. And when they finally got around to taking a look back at the chemical weapons that he was supposedly captured with him during this U.S. Special Forces raid in Afghanistan, it turned out to be sugar, cooking oil, and I think it was baking soda. So there were mistakes made early on. But there are two men at Guantanamo who are Afghans now who are considered uh, forever prisoners. One that U.S. intelligence still believes to be associated with al-Qaeda or was captured as an al-Qaeda associate, which is why they've decided he's a forever prisoner. And there's another man there who they believe was influential in an Afghan militia, not the Taliban, and the uh, intelligence community has recommended he not be released. The problem with our ability to look from the outside in is what we really see are unclassified versions of intelligence and that there are entire files that the public cannot see in order to evaluate or look over the shoulders of the people making the decisions. Yeah. So we see a, a, a snapshot. A partial picture. And, and to be fair to Kate Clark, I did ask her about those two who are, as you would describe them, forever prisoners. And, and she said, you know, there's nothing that she'd seen that proved their guilt. But then again, she hadn't seen everything, particularly on those two. There was a particular paucity of documents on those two. Oh, the, and I just would like to point out very briefly, this is not about guilt or innocence. Only 10 people there are accused of crimes. They're trying to charge them and convict them in six instances and their death penalty cases. Ten people are charged with crimes. The standard for detaining people at Guantanamo is not about guilt or innocence. It's about whether U.S. intelligence believes, A, that they meet the definition of these unlawful enemy combatants because of their associations, and B, whether they can find a way to recommend release to uh, circumstances that would, in their assessment, not endanger yeah, it's US a very forces or their allies. Yeah, it's an important correction. They're not I, yep, I got charged. It. And I fully accept it. And you're, you're absolutely right. General Leonard, when you heard Kate Clark describing some of these, you know, cases right at the end of the process, I mean, we're down to the last 40 now. Uh, uh, does, does, does that, I mean, it seems surprising to me that some of this stuff seems as as, uh, you know, as thin as it, as it sounds. Yeah. yeah, let me speak to just the, the 300 that I had there because of the 780, I was, as the first commander, I only saw the first 300. But as they arrived on the airplanes, along with the documentation that caused them to arrive there, I came to the conclusion that it took a company-grade officer in our military uh, to put them on a plane, and it was likely to take the President of the United States to send them back. Most of the information that I saw at that time uh, was pretty thin gruel. Yeah. David Rifkin, does that bother you? I mean, you've accepted that some of these were mistaken cases and so on, but it, it seems even in these sort of hard-to-solve cases, it may be a bit like that. It bothers me, but frankly, the solutions being propounded also bother me. Look, the fact that this administration, that is ideologically and sort of philosophically very much one attempt to Guantanamo, concluded it could not do so, should be viewed as very consequential. Point number two, I don't want to debate specific cases, quite frankly. 
I've not read the files, even the unclassified version, much less classified. I'm not in the government these days. But that's not an interesting question for your listeners. The question on the table really should be for everybody. Let's stipulate there will be some mistakes. But let's also stipulate that we're going to capture from time to time really, really bad people. And if we do not keep them in custody, they're going to go back and commit atrocities and kill civilians and burn people in cages, etc., etc. A lot of this stems from the inadequacy of American U.S. intelligence on September 11th, 2001. The day of the 9-11 attacks, American, particularly military intelligence, was ignorant about al-Qaeda, ignorant about the Taliban, ignorant about the militias, and ignorant about the tribal nature of this country we would invade within a month and a half. We go into Afghanistan, and as is pointed out, we seize foreigners. We seize Arabs. We seize Afghans. We are looking for the next 9-11 plot, and we don't have a sophisticated view of who the enemy is. What is going on now with the assessments is we're taking a look back and we're concluding that there were people who should not have been there in the first place. Yeah, David Rifkin, can I just push back on one thing you said and then we'll we'll get your response and then go to Moses and Beg because you you said, you know, it's not of interest to our listeners whether these were basically mistakes were made. But it is actually because, you know, we broadcast the Middle East and South Asia and so on. and, And people there are bothered very much by this idea that, Innocent people were picked up and have had, you know, a terrible experience. I perhaps was imprecise. Of course it matters. But it should equally matter, and matter even more in the long run, whether or not we have a system of legal rules, the legal architecture, that's responsive to the threat. Because let me just pose a simple hypothetical to you. How would one feel if we'd given up the system of military detention at all, use criminal justice system that is utterly inadequate to the task in terms of being able to prosecute individuals we capture? We capture some bad guys, we release them, and they go and kill dozens and dozens of innocent women and children. How is that a good thing? Let's put that to Mozambique. Let me just ask a little question here, and that is that it's been accepted that by everybody across the board that there are several people held in Guantanamo that were held um, unjustly. Um, has there been even one of those people? Have any one of those been apologised to officially by any of the United States government's past or present? The answer is no, there has been not even a recognition of any case. In other words, the justification continues. And so the argument that uh, Guantanamo prisoners continue to pose a threat no matter what, after 14 years of detention without charge or trial, being uh, interrogated by the world's most powerful law enforcement and intelligence agencies. I mean, honestly, the prisoners are the most vetted prisoners on the planet. And if after that process you can say that we've released these people, there should be no more discussion about this fear of recidivism or not and that being used as a stick to keep the rest of the prisoners in. The other well, no, well, hold on, hold on, Mosenbeck. I mean, some of the prisoners, for instance, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's accused of organising 9-11 against him, there's an, you know, an overwhelming well, you know, amount look, of evidence. Khalid, I mean, obviously, he would be a risk Khalid if he Sheikh was Mohammed and the, the big five, as they're known, they were brought into Guantanamo after I was released. So they weren't even brought into Guantanamo in the early days. So yeah, well, well, that's it, not the point. The point is, if you, if you release them, obviously, they, they, they would be a threat. Well, look. If there is evidence against them, they should be charged and they should be prosecuted. America has no compunction at all in prosecuting people uh, and giving them sentences uh, that, are, that are lifelong sentences for, for lesser crimes. So I don't see why that can't be done with Khad Sheikh Mohammed or any of the other high-value prisoners against whom there is evidence. The problem is when you keep people in secret detention facilities and torture them for years on end and then bring them to Guantanamo, uh, you know that the only process that you can give them is the one that's in Guantanamo because on American soil, the case would be thrown out of court because of torture evidence cannot be uh, submitted. So this is the problem. You've dug for yourselves a, a quagmire from which you can't get out of, and then you keep justifying it and saying that this is somehow uh, protecting the United States of America, and it's not really, because the terrorism threat, as you all know, has risen up since as a result of 9-11, as a result of the tortured testimony and the invasion of Iraq and beyond. OK, we're going to look ahead now, because we've got to work out what's going to happen under Donald Trump's presidency. He has spoken of uh, keeping Guantanamo open, indeed of expanding it. This is from a rally in in Sparks, Nevada, in February 2016. And it was the same day that President Obama gave a big speech about a renewed push he was talking about to shut Guantanamo down. This morning, I watched President Obama talking about Gitmo, right? Guantanamo Bay, which, by the way, which, by the way, we are keeping open, which we are keeping open. And we're going to load it up with some bad dudes, believe me. We're going to load it up. But here's the thing I didn't understand. I heard this, but I didn't understand it. 
We spend $40 million a month on maintaining this place. $40 million a month. I think we have, what do we have left in there? Like 100 people or something? I would guarantee you that I could do it for a tiny, tiny fraction. I don't mean like 39. I mean like maybe five, maybe three, maybe like peanuts. Well, that's the Donald Trump speaking back in February. And his view about uh, not closing it is pretty much the settled view of the Republican Party now. And we can hear from Senator Pat Roberts, Republican from Kansas, and he's been a very vocal opponent of moving detainees to the United States. His state has the military maximum security prison, Fort Leavenworth. And at one stage, he said he would shut down the Senate if President Obama tried to close Guantanamo and send detainees to Fort Leavenworth. Well, I put it to him, given that the US copes with many high-risk prisoners, uh, why does he see this issue of moving people to US facilities as such a problem? Uh, we have a ban on that in the National Defense Authorization Act. No money can be spent to send uh, prisoners, and we're talking about the worst of the worst, to the United States, more especially I'm concerned about Fort Leavenworth, but we also have uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and then a facility in Colorado. All three senators are very much opposed to it, as well as the Kansas delegation, as well as the people of Leavenworth, Kansas. I feel it would put a target on the community's back. I don't expect this to be a problem. The president signed a bill on the National Defense Reauthorization Act last year and has a ban on spending money for that, so I don't anticipate we're going to have a problem. No, sure, but I think around the world people are a bit baffled by this because they, they see uh, the Boston bomber, for example, in, in a U.S. prison, and, uh, you know, that's, that's normal and that's what people would expect. And yet you're saying that, that, that somehow these people are different, but, I mean... How can they be that different to, to the Boston bomber? We have a big discussion uh, throughout uh, law enforcement as to uh, when you have that kind of, a, of an act or that kind of a threat, do you, you know, simply give them a, a court case and an attorney, et cetera, et cetera, and, and go uh, forward with that with the hope that they will be incarcerated? Or is this, in fact, a continuation on the war against terrorism and they would go to Gitmo? Usually it gets uh, down to the fact that the person uh, was from a known foreign terrorist organization and came from the battlefield overseas, not uh, within our shores. Okay, and and what about the next um, period now? Because Donald Trump has even talked, I think, about expanding it, but I don't think there are any firm plans. What do you expect to happen? I think a decision has to be made as to whether interrogation with regards to an enemy combatant is the road that we might want to consider, or we can continue using drones and simply kill people. Uh, That last part I don't agree with. As a former chairman of the Intelligence Committee, I think we can do better. I think interrogation does provide value. Uh, You just have to make sure that the interrogation follows the Army Field Manual and does not get into anything that uh, would ever resemble torture. Right, so you're saying you think that this allegation that's sometimes made that rather than have people come to Guantanamo or similar facilities, that there has been use of drones to kill people before they get there, really. You think there may be some truth in that? Well, of course there's truth in it. I mean, if a drone selects a target and you have terrorists who like to surround themselves with all sorts of other people, or if it just happens by accident, you're simply, you're simply killing people. You're not interrogating them. You're not capturing them. You're not getting any benefit of the intelligence So, you know, that discussion has to take place with the new administration, also members of the Intelligence Committee and the Armed Services Committee, and for that matter, the entire Congress. So really you're saying fewer drones and more captures, if if it can be done, more captures? Well, I would would prefer that. I was chairman during a time when we did get very valid information from enemy combatants. That has changed a great deal. What happens to Gitmo uh, remains in the future. But I think that this is a topic of conversation as well as concern. It's extremely important. There we are. That's the senator for Kansas, uh, Pat Roberts there. General Leonard, what do you make of what you heard there, and particularly his sort of very frank admission, really, that he thinks, anyway, that the United States is using drones in preference to capturing people? I do have concerns about how we're employing drones, if for no other reason than the fact that we're demonstrating 
that it's uh, not that difficult to use them. I think probably the more important question is, you know, whether or not uh, Guantanamo is going to be closed on President-elect Trump's watch. Obviously, we've done a very bad job of uh, predicting what President-elect Trump is going to do, but there is an indicator here to me. You know, during the, the campaign, he advocated for activities that have been determined by most uh, uh, to be torture. And uh, yet he walked that statement back recently after talking to Marine Corps General Mattis, who simply told him that it isn't effective. If the right folks explain how Guantanamo actually makes defeating terrorism more difficult, then I believe there's still a chance it will be uh, closed. What do you think, uh, Carol Rosenberg? I think it's an open question of what President Trump will do. In order to eliminate some of these drone strikes, he would have to order, in many instances, special forces put on the ground in two areas of Yemen and risking um, U.S. troops to try to capture. And I'm not sure whether that's a decision in certain circumstances he's willing to make. But I can imagine a symbolic transfer of a detainee to Guantanamo during the Trump administration, which would inevitably trigger a court test of whether that person meets the definition of someone who is entitled to be detained there. Because essentially, if you remember, Guantanamo was set up for al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And in a sense, we still don't have a um, what they call an authorization for the use of military force by Congress that defines ISIS as part of that exact war on terror. So if President Trump decides to take an ISIS person and bring them to Guantanamo, I think it'll be back to the courts to examine the authority to detain offshore in this quasi-military detention status. Well, it's very interesting. And, and do you think that the, I mean, have you any sense of whether the legal arguments for extending this to Islamic State would be difficult? So it's it, it's very complicated. Uh, the Obama administration has said they do have this authority, and it is through this authority that they are droning people. But the real question becomes, if you have a live person at Guantanamo, which is an established law that they're entitled to recourse to federal courts, we will suddenly have federal judges examining that authority that the White House has asserted allows them to drone. This is David Rifkin. To get back to the most fundamental question, we cannot use a criminal justice system to deal with this problem because We have very exacting standards of proof in the civilian system. And if you put them through, this is not the situation involving Sarnia brothers and Boston bombers. If you put them through criminal justice system in the United States, they would be let go. And yet there's more than enough evidence to hold them in the military justice system. Let let me me understand that a bit more, because I mean, that is obviously a very important issue. And it would seem that the US courts have indeed convicted, as you've just acknowledged, some people accused of these sort of violent jihadist crimes. I mean, I'm sure you would see the benefit in terms of the US global reputation if there were seen to be open, transparent trials according to normal rules of law that produced, you know, uh, convictions. And these are not cases, presumably, in which people would have been tortured and therefore their evidence would be tainted. So what's the problem? It's a far more complicated issue. Let's say we have individuals who clearly can be successfully prosecuted in civilian justice, and people like Sarnia Brothers, which is to say the Boston bombers. But let's say we pick up a special force operation in Syria or Libya, and we pick up somebody who's intelligence those knows 100% certainty is a member of ISIL. But that type of evidence has nothing to do with torture, to be clear, but that type of evidence is sufficiently not authenticated, even if we wanted to put it through in an open trial and, and put it resources and efforts. So that person cannot be successfully prosecuted in the civilian justice system. So what I want to appeal to you always, can we not be reasonable and agree that there okay. should be a, different tools? For some people, civilian justice system is fine. For some people, it's not. And therefore... We should have a best military justice system possible. Lots of people want to come back to you. Can I I jump in for just a minute here? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Civilian criminal courts have convicted more than 550 individuals on terrorism-related charges since 9-11. If you balance that against what the military commissions have accomplished down in Guantanamo, they convicted eight, three of which have been overturned completely and one partially. Now, I'm not an attorney. I have been a general court-martial convening authority, and one thing I, I would ask that, uh, at least to correct the record, is is that military commissions have to follow rules of evidence in the law as well. This is totally misrepresents what I said. There are a number of people, enemy combatants, whom we have certainty that they're enemy combatants, but not 
proof that is sufficient either for military commission or for civilian justice system. And I would ask my colleague with respect that if we had in custody five senior members of ISIL, 100% certainty in the intelligence community that they are who they are, who committed unspeakable atrocities, but we don't have sufficient proof. So we can neither prosecute them in, the, in a federal yeah, district could, court nor in a military commission. Is it really your position they should be released and go kill more people? But surely, that, David Rifkin, you can see the problem with that. You've just said 100% certainty, and yet we don't have the proof. the I intelligence mean, community, it's a different world, especially if crimes occur overseas, and we don't have... You know, wiretaps listening to those people. We don't have, you know, forensic okay. evidence. Look, the United States has, is the only country that set up prison like Guantanamo Bay. Mr. Rifkin says that it is justified in whichever way he's tried to describe. Here's a question. If you set a precedent for the rest of the world, why can't other countries set up similar offshore type of prisons and hold people there, including United States uh, citizens, if they deem it fit that United States citizens, according to their laws of war, have also committed crimes and therefore need to be put to this. And everybody sets up their own little Guantanamo base all around the world. What sort of place would we be in? Let me just bring in Carol Rosenberg at the end of this programme. I can hear you. You you want to make a point, Carol? I would just like to point out uh, that the Obama administration has captured a number of people who Supporters of Guantanamo wanted sent to Guantanamo, and they have been brought to the United States after brief interrogation at sea, charged with uh, federal crimes. And in the instance that was considered a test case of a Somali terrorist, he pleaded guilty and turned government witness in federal court. It's not that it can't be done. It's that some people have a preference for this kind of extra-territorial detention and charge. I'm very grateful to all of you for contributing to this programme. It's a highly contentious issue still, and you've illustrated that, but also, I think, uh, helped explain what's going on and what may go on in the coming years under President Trump. So thank you all very much. Thank you to General Leonard, to Carol Rosenberg, to Moazin Beg, and indeed to David Rifkin. And just to remind people they can get in touch, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. You can tweet at bbcnhextra, and uh, probably most importantly, you can get the BBC NewsHour Extra podcast. Uh, If you put that into your search engine, it'll take you to the right place. And then once a week, you will get a thoroughgoing discussion, as we've just had, on one topic for one hour every week. Uh, But for now, that's it. So thanks very much for listening. And from Owen Bennett-Jones here in London, goodbye.